friends, I'm Angelina, I'm here with my pal Aurora, and we are Murder Murder News, the cult that you just accidentally joined without even realizing. But not to worry, you've landed in the cult with all the adorable baby goats and none of the brainwashing. We're just working really hard to bring our lifelong dream to fruition, carving out a compound where we can get away from the world with some like-minded weirdos and discuss the subject that brought us all together, murder. We think of you all as honorary cult members just because you keep coming back for more each Friday. But if you'd like to make it official, you can join the Monster Commune on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash murdermurdernews, and for just a few bucks a month, you'll have exclusive access to regular patron-only content. We'll give you a shout-out on the show, and you'll get your own flashy title, like Grandmaster of Goats. We've just posted a brand new episode about the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. So if you haven't already, go sign up now so you can check it out. So Aurora, how's your week going? Uh, I am doing well. I'm, you know, settling in Vancouver. We've found an apartment Mm -hmm. and gotten to explore the area a little bit, including uh, over the weekend, we went to Stanley Park, which is the location where the babes in the woods of Canada, where the uh, children's bodies were found. Gosh, I don't know, maybe in the 60s. I'm probably way wrong about that. Yeah, that that. sounds about right. (laughs) Wow, that's super exciting. And uh, we definitely have to visit there when I visit. You. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to come. Mm-hmm. Have you been to Stanley Park before? If I have, I was a child, so I don't recall. <laughs> it is really stunning. And uh, it's like a great place for like dog walks and stuff, though. Here it's been kind mm. of overrun with coyotes and you have to be a bit careful oh, wow. with your dogs. Okay. But... <laughs> is it close by? Like, can you make it your regular dog walk spot? Yeah, it's really oh, close. Yeah, it's so it's in the downtown. It's just like a little bit kind of like northwest of the downtown. And it's enormous. Mm-hmm. I believe somebody told me it's the second largest urban park in North America, just after um, Central Park in New York. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. It's (laughs) gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a great way to get settled into your new digs, like just hanging out in the, in the parks. That's my favorite part of every new neighborhood. (laughs) And I'm enjoying all the like cute little community parks where there's community gardens. Uh, I posted on my Facebook yesterday that I saw a man out walking his bearded dragon on a leash yesterday. (laughs) And like, it was so big. And I like, I looked over and I saw him like laying down in the grass. I'm like, what is happening? What kind of like weird (laughs) shit am I walking into right? now and like for oh, a second man. I thought it was like a baby alligator or something and I'm like <laughs> that would be very happening? weird but then I like saw him and I was like no I'm pretty sure that's a bearded dragon it might have been something else but it was very it could have been iguana for all I know it was huge though wow <laughs> did you know that bearded dragons like have no gender for the first like few years or something Ooh, like that no I didn't know that <laughs> I I learned this from Tina Fey apparently has a bearded dragon and she was talking about um like teaching our kids about it and whatever. And uh-huh. uh, the person that was interviewing her was like, oh, is it a boy dragon or a girl dragon? She's like, well, <laughs> just like we we refer to the dragon as they and the kids are learning so much about gender and, and sex and how they relate and how they don't oh, just I from this that. dragon. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Like, that's a great pet for kids to learn that stuff. Yeah, that's so. great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we dig into today's story, let's check out some of the true crime stories that are making headlines this week. Last Saturday, the city of Oslo in Norway was rocked by what the Norwegian Security Service is calling a terrorist attack. Two people were killed and more than 20 wounded as a gunman opened fire on the capital city's annual LGBTQ Pride Festival. 
One man in his 50s and another in his 60s lost their lives. 10 people were treated for serious injuries, and 11 others suffered minor injuries. The assailant, Zanyar Matapur, a 42-year-old Norwegian citizen originally from Iran, was arrested after opening fire in three separate locations in downtown Oslo. The suspect allegedly has a long history of violence and threats, as well as mental health issues. Alabama's Ophelia Nichols, known to the TikTok community as Mama Tot, is mourning the loss of her son, Randon Lee, after he was killed in a shooting incident last Friday evening. Lee had allegedly planned to meet some folks to sell the marijuana, but was instead met with gunfire. The teen died just a few hours shy of his 19th birthday. Nichols, who has been posting updates to TikTok with the username at shoelover99, is pleading with the public for answers as her son's death is being investigated. Anyone with any information to share is being asked to contact the Pritchard Police Department at 251-452-7800 or the Mobile County Sheriff's Office at 251-574-8633. We'll be right back after a quick commercial break from one of our fellow DarkCast podcasts. Hi, this is Molly and Cody, the host of Over the Fence True Crime Podcast. Please join us as we talk about true crime in the most normal place in the world. Over Over the the fence. fence. To be specific, over our backyard fence. We're both moms of humans and of dogs. We live directly next door to each other and share many conversations about life and family, but mostly true crime over our backyard fence. And we invite you to come learn more about true crime and, well, us. We give a lot of attention to California true crime, but have ventured throughout the U.S. and even across the pond and plan to continue our world domination in the near future. Listen to us wherever you listen to your podcasts or give us a follow on Instagram at over the fence underscore podcast. So grab a drink and talk with us over the fence. And we're back. Before we dig in, we want to offer a quick disclaimer. Though we joke about forming a true crime cult, that is not to diminish the severity of actual cult activity, and we want you to know that we take the cases we're discussing very seriously. We want to deliver each story with the utmost respect to victims and anyone involved. If you feel we've missed the mark, you don't like our tone, or if you notice we've gotten any details wrong, let us know with a quick email to murdermurdernews at gmail.com and we'll make it right. Some specific trigger warnings for this week include sexual assault, graphic descriptions of violence and dismemberment. If any of the subjects are particularly sensitive for you, you may want to skip this one and listen to one of our other episodes instead. In the last couple of episodes, I mentioned I haven't been watching much in the way of true crime documentaries, but I'm always watching loads of TV. When I'm not watching creepy docs, I'm almost always in some state of re-watching Seinfeld. There aren't a lot of true crime references on the 90s sitcom, but one that sticks out for me is in season five, episode nine, when Elaine pleaded with her boyfriend, Joel Rifkin, to change his name. She really liked the guy, but couldn't go out with someone who shared his name with an infamous serial killer who had just been caught. Please change your name to OJ, she begged, which is so much funnier in retrospect. The episode came out in 1993, and it wasn't until the following year that the name OJ also acquired some murdery associations. The irony surely wasn't lost on any Seinfeld-watching true crime fans. But how much do you all know about this Joel Rifkin character? Born in January of 1959, Joel David Rifkin was adopted at three weeks old by an upper-middle-class Long Island couple named Bernard and Jean Rifkin. Joel's birth parents had been unwed teenage parents— 
And because his father had been recorded as unknown on his birth certificate, Joel drew his own conclusions. He felt that if his father's identity was truly unknown, then his mother must have slept with a lot of men. And if his mother slept with a lot of men, then she must have been a sex worker. Without any confirmation that these details were true, Joel built up a story in his head that led him to feel disdain towards his birth mother and towards sex workers in general. Joel's adoptive parents were kind and loving people who, by the sounds of things, subjected their children to pretty wholesome childhoods. Allegedly, the couple had zero tolerance for violence and forbade their kids from playing with toy guns. Joel's little sister, Jan, three years younger, was also adopted. As a child, Rifkin was clumsy and dorky and got picked on by his classmates. He lived with the nickname of Turtle, which ridiculed his slouch posture. When tested, Joel got an IQ score of 128, which is above average. However, he did not do well in school, likely due to low levels of confidence and self-esteem, exacerbated by bullying. Rifkin was also dyslexic, which wasn't widely understood in the 60s and 70s. Out of all disciplines, Rifkin was worst at sports, in stark contrast to his adopted father, who was a real sporty guy and had also been a good student. This strained their father-son relationship a bit, and the two struggled to connect. In 1972, Joel saw Alfred Hitchcock's movie Frenzy, and he would come to rewatch the film probably more times than Angelina seen Seinfeld. <laughs> and that was a feat back then with no Netflix. The film is about a man recently discharged from the Air Force who becomes the lead suspect in a series of murders attributed to the necktie strangler when his ex-wife is murdered by the serial killer. Rifkin was most impressed by the strangulation aspect. Uh, have you ever seen that movie? I haven't. Have you? You know, I saw it uh, maybe in like the past five years uh, when I went to visit my parents in Ohio. And okay. oh, wow, it's like so upsetting and problematic. Really? Like, it's got, like oh, yeah, no. I don't like quite remember why it was so upsetting to me. But at one point, my mom and I were just like, OK, we've had enough. Like, this is just <sighs> so gross. Like, it was just yeah. like the the scenes where he's raping the women are so like long and drawn out, like intentionally like depicting like the sexual oh aspect of it and like trying to make it seem sexy. Like it just seemed really gross so to like me. So like really catering to a creep like Joel Rifkin and not absolutely. like an ordinary movie watcher. Yeah, hmm. it felt much more like porny than wow. uh, like actually like, making a statement about rape, like certainly for the time. Like it's just, it's really yeah. upsetting to watch. Ugh, disturbing. I kind of want to watch it just to know, but um, I guess I expected a little bit of problematic issues when it's that old, but that, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a lot. Okay. <laughs> Joel Ripken graduated from East Meadow High School in Nassau County, New York in 1977. After graduating, he made up his mind that he would be sure to fit in better at college if he lost his virginity beforehand. For the first time, Rifkin cruised around Manhattan looking for a sex worker. When he found one he liked, he paid her to take his virginity. This experience gave him the feeling of control that he'd been craving after enduring years of bullying. Joel had a couple of stints in college, but it seems like he wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do with his life. He had a false start at Nassau Community College and then attended SUNY Brockport beginning in 1977, studying photojournalism. In college, Rifkin was actually quite popular and high regarded. He was really good at what he did, and he was dedicated. His colleagues admired his work. One such colleague was Robert Mladenich, whose life took the path that Joel seemingly may have taken if he had made different decisions along the way. 
Mladenich went on to be a patrol officer in the South Bronx and was named Cop of the Year in 1985. He was also a professional heavyweight boxer. He published a number of notable works during his career in journalism and then went on to write a handful of true crime books, including one on Rifkin called From the Mouth of the Monster. Mladenich was also a significant contributor to the Oxygen documentary Rifkin on Rifkin, Private Confessions of a Serial Killer, which is a really great film that I would recommend on the subject of murderer Joel Rifkin. Mladenich describes an event at SUNY that really underlined Rifkin's potential in photojournalism. When the two traveled together to Rochester to cover a boxing match featuring up-and-coming boxer Rocky Frado. To quote Robert Mladenich, Frado was named the winner of a fight he clearly lost, causing the crowd to become furious and drunkenly throw items and punches Frado's way. Joel initially sought refuge under the ring, but quickly realized that from a journalistic standpoint, Valor took precedence over safety. He was soon amid the fray, firing away with his camera like a frontline war correspondent while bullets whizzed past his head. We could not believe our good fortune. On our very first paid assignment ever, we would not just be reporting the news, we were actually becoming part of it, end quote. Rifkin's depression obscured his early success, and he became distracted by some dark fantasies that would later grow into depraved hobbies. By the time classes were in full swing, he was picking up sex workers every chance he got. Joel had just one brief romantic relationship in his life during college. His ex-girlfriend describes Rifkin as very sweet, but always depressed. A shock to everyone who knew him at school, Joel dropped out of SUNY before he finished the program. He moved back in with his parents and started working at a record store called Record World on Long Island. He spent every penny he made from that job on sex workers. And the only thing that motivated him to work was the thought of picking up another sex worker. Nobody in Joel's life knew about his habit. And he was emboldened when he realized that he was truly managing to keep it all a secret. Joel imagines that if he had taken antidepressant medication before dropping out of school, he'd probably be a successful photographer today rather than the prolific murderer that he is. After dropping out of SUNY, Joel worked odd jobs and moved in and out of his parents' house whenever he ran out of money or started a new job, respectively. In 1986, Joel's dad, Bernard Rifkin, was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and it hit him hard. He shared his dying wish for Joel to attend classes at SUNY Farmingdale. Joel enrolled in the biology program, and after his father fell into a coma, he whispered into his unconscious ear that he got a 90% on the midterms. In February of 1987, Bernard completed suicide, swapping his cancer meds out for barbiturates. Despite the fact that they had not been close and even butted heads sometimes, Joel delivered his father's eulogy at the funeral, and he proclaimed that, While my father didn't give me life, he gave me love. Following the death of his father, Joel again dropped out of school and started his own business, working as a landscaper and gardener. Driving a pickup truck went along with the job as Joel drove the truck on double duty as he spent every night cruising lower Manhattan, still working only to fund his presumed sex addiction. Rifkin says that addiction grew stronger as he dealt with the trauma of losing his dad. During the summer of 1987, Joel was arrested in a sting operation in Hempstead, Long Island, when he attempted to solicit sex from an undercover officer. He seems to have gotten away with just a slap on the wrist, and he managed to keep news of his arrest from his mother. 
At this point, Rifkin began collecting articles on serial killers, in particular, serial killers who preyed upon sex workers. He was especially preoccupied with the work of the Green River Killer, who at that point was still at large and the case was unsolved. Often, Joel would have sex with women he picked up right in his truck, but sometimes he even brought them home to the house he shared with his mother and sister, particularly when his mother would go away for a long weekend or for work. Aside from work and spending time with sex workers, Rifkin never left the house. He didn't have any friends, he didn't date, and he didn't have any healthy hobbies. Rifkin had fantasized about strangling and killing women for as long as he can remember, at least as far back as 1972 when he first saw the film Frenzy, but he never acted on that urge until 1989. At some point in early 1989, Rifkin picked up a young woman with wavy red hair and light blue eyes who introduced herself as Susie. His mother was away on a business trip, so he brought Susie home to Long Island where they had sex. Joel describes it being suddenly overtaken by an uncontrollable urge that he grabbed a decorative howitzer artillery shell and beat her mercilessly with the artifact. Afterwards, he strangled her to death and then went to sleep, untroubled by the murder he had just committed. When he awoke, Rifkin got to work dismembering the woman's body. He used an X-Acto knife, which made for delicate work and must have taken some time. He pulled her teeth out with pliers and cut off her fingertips. He put the woman's head inside a paint can and he scattered her remains in various locations along Manhattan canals. Rifkin recalls this method of disposal as messy and knew that if he did kill anyone else, he wouldn't dispose of a body in quite the same way. In the morning of March 5th, 1989, a badly mutilated woman's head was found inside of a paint can near the seventh hole of the Hopeville Valley Golf Course in New Jersey. With no teeth and therefore no dental records to compare the skull, identifying the woman was impossible at the time. Investigators did manage to determine that the woman was HIV positive. A few months later, a woman's legs were found in Jefferson Township that were later connected to the severed head, meaning that both body parts belonged to the same, still-identified woman. Despite dedicated investigators who kept the case open and continuously rechecked the evidence as new forensic technology evolved, the young woman remained unidentified for 24 years. In 2013, New Jersey State Police Department Sergeant Stephen Ubansky was scrolling through a missing person database when he came across a familiar face belonging to a woman named Heidi Bulk. Ordinarily, investigators wouldn't give Heidi another look, especially because she wasn't reported missing until 2001. When Heidi's aunt made the report, she told police that she wasn't sure how long Heidi had been missing, but she believed her niece was last seen in 1995. Detectives determined that the 1995 sighting was just secondhand information and that Heidi's parents were still alive and well in Baltimore. After testing her mother's DNA against the DNA that was previously discovered that the heads and legs shared, it was found to be a match and the body parts were formally identified as belonging to Heidi Bulk. Back in 1989, no one was looking for 24-year-old Heidi, a fact that Joel Rifkin assumed and exploited. Once he had finally lived out his fantasy of strangling a sex worker to death, Rifkin told himself that this would be the first and last time he murdered someone. Delighted that he seemed to have completely gotten away with it, his resolve dissolved before long. 18 months later, Rifkin struck again, this time dismembering his victim in a similar fashion and sinking the severed body parts into buckets of concrete. Rifkin remembers being put out by how long concrete takes to cure. 
He decided then and there, concrete is not practical. He wouldn't be disposing of any more bodies in concrete. The second victim's body was never discovered, but was determined to be a woman named Julie Blackbird. Each time Joel Rifkin murdered a young woman, he swore to himself that it would be his last. He continuously proved himself wrong, but Rifkin doesn't describe himself as being weak-willed or being unable to resist the urge. In fact, quite the contrary. Each time Joel Rifkin found himself alone with a young woman he knew no one would miss, he was overtaken by the feelings of power and control that emerged from within himself. Just the idea that he could take this person's life if he wanted to stroked his ego and his budding God complex. In July of 1991, the badly decomposed body of 31-year-old Barbara Jacobs was found stuffed inside a plastic bag, closed up in a cardboard box that had been dumped in the Hudson River. Barbara is remembered as a sweet woman with striking dark features. In September of 1991, the body of Yoon Lee was pulled out of the East River. The 31-year-old Korean-American woman's remains were closed in a steamer trunk found off the coast of Randall's Island. Rifkin has recounted another encounter with police while he was dumping the remains of one of his victims. An officer briefly questioned what Rifkin was up to, but he managed to convince them that he was just in the area scavenging for junk and he was let go with a warning. 22-year-old Mary Ellen DeLuca was born and raised on Long Island, and she's remembered as a vivacious young woman with wild curly hair and a wide smile. Mary Ellen was reported missing in September of 1991, and her nude body was discovered strangled and dumped in a field in Cornwall, upstate New York, in October of the same year. The day after Christmas in 1991, Rifkin strangled 28-year-old Lorraine Orvieto to death during a sex act. He drove her to a schoolyard fence in Bayshore, Long Island, where he forced her to perform oral sex on him and strangled her while she did it. He made it his goal to strangle any future victims during sex, as it filled him with particularly powerful feelings. This reminds me of Sunset Strip Slayer Doug Clark, who had described a goal of killing a woman during sex so he could feel some kind of death spasm in her vagina, which is all kinds of fucked up. Yeah. As Rifkin learned after killing her, Lorraine was also HIV positive. No one thought to report her missing until over two months after her death. He brought Orvieto's body to the commercial space he had rented for his landscaping company, where it was deposited into a 55-gallon oil drum. He dropped the drum into Coney Island Creek, where it remained undiscovered for the next six months. The killer was exceptionally fond of the oil drum method of disposal and would go on to use it on at least three subsequent victims. An oil drum containing the body of 38-year-old Marianne Holloman was pulled from Coney Island Creek during the same week, in July when Lorraine Oviato's skeletal remains were spotted by a fisherman. But Lorraine's body wasn't identified until after Rifkin's capture. Marianne was identified by dental records after an anonymous caller reported seeing a corpse floating in the water. Marianne had her own business sewing custom G-strings for dancers. She was Rifkin's oldest victim. Although two bodies had been discovered in the same creek within such a short window of time and disposed of in such a similar method, police were slow to connect the dots. In a crime-soaked era for New York City, the NYPD saw about 2,000 murders a year. Amid the chaos of it all, even New York State's most prolific serial killer went unnoticed for some time. The body of a still unidentified woman was pulled from Newtown Creek in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, when someone spotted a foot sticking out from a rusty oil drum on May 13th of 1992. 
When her body was discovered, police somehow did not suspect foul play and did not believe this woman was murdered. They finally realized they were wrong only once Rifkin confessed. Rifkin couldn't remember the woman's name, but he remembered that she had tattoos, that he had picked her up in Manhattan, and that she had fought very hard for her life while he strangled her to death. Rifkin also recalls stuffing the body of another young woman into an oil drum and dropping it into the Harlem River. But he can't remember when exactly this took place or what the young woman's name was. The victim's body has never been discovered, and she was never identified. Not much is known about any of the up to 17 women who make up Joel Rifkin's victims, and that was by design. Rifkin understood that targeting sex workers meant he would have a head start on investigators. Many of these young women were estranged from their families and didn't have a lot of friends. Several were struggling with drug addiction. Some were never even reported missing. 17 is a rough estimation based on Rifkin's confessions and unidentified remains discovered in the region. There was only ever enough evidence to convict Joel Rifkin of about half of the murders he presumably committed. In April of 1992, Joel brought 25-year-old Ira Sanchez to a Manhattan housing project where he strangled her to death during intercourse. He kept Iris's watch and jewelry as trophies, as it turned out he had done with most of his victims. He drove around with her body for a while before deciding to stash it under an old mattress in a vacant lot at JFK Airport. Her body was still waiting there for investigators to discover after Rifkin's arrest. During the spring of 1992, it became apparent that Joel's landscaping business was not a hit. He was losing money and his landlord was chasing him over a hefty overdue rent bill of about $700, which would be about $1,400 today. He made one more attempt at returning to school at SUNY Farmingdale, but he was distracted, wasn't doing well, and was missing a lot of classes. Rifkin insists that he also picked up plenty of sex workers that he did not murder throughout the course of his four-year murder spree. I can imagine there are some women out there today who don't know how close they came to falling prey to New York's most prolific serial killer. On May 25, 1992, Rifkin strangled Anna Lopez, a 33-year-old mother of three. Right before Anna's murder, the two had sex in Joel's truck, parked on the side of the road. Anna Lopez's decomposing body was found in a wooded area off Interstate 81 in Brewster, New York. Her earring was later discovered in Rifkin's home. He had kept it as a trophy. Rifkin killed 21-year-old Violet O'Neill in East Meadow after the two had sex. He dismembered Violet's body in the bathtub and discarded it into River Hudson. Her arms and legs were found packed inside a suitcase, and her torso was discovered inside a plastic bag. He grew bolder over time, often driving around with victims' bodies in the car and once even propping a body up in the passenger seat as he stopped for gas. He would sometimes store bodies in the garage at the home he shared with his mother and sister until he decided what to do with them. He has even dismembered bodies in the family home. Neighbors had complained of a foul odor coming from the Rifkin's garage, but Joel explained it away as fertilizer and other chemicals related to his landscaping business. Former cheerleader and actress Mary Catherine Williams fell on hard times after her divorce from a professional football player. She became addicted to drugs and turned to sex work to help with the ensuing financial struggle. She and Joel had gone on a few dates together without incident. But in October of 1992, after Joel helped her score some drugs, Mary got high and dozed off in his mother's car. He started strangling her in her sleep. 
She awoke and began to struggle, but Rifkin overpowered her, ending her life. Her body was found in December of 1992 in the Westchester suburb of Yorktown, but wasn't identified until after Rifkin's arrest. Rifkin kept William's credit card and handbag full of jewelry. 23-year-old Jenny Soto had fought hard trying to get clean from a persistent drug addiction. She fought just as hard when faced with predator Joel Rifkin, who called her the toughest one to kill. She clawed so hard at Rifkin's cheeks that she broke her fingernails off on his face. Then he snapped her neck. She may not have survived the attack, but the fight she put up subdued Joel Rifkin for the next 15 weeks, likely his longest period of inactivity during his four-year killing spree. He dumped Jenny's body in the Harlem River around the same spot he had dumped Yoon Lee's body 14 months prior. Investigators initially assumed Soto's boyfriend, who had a criminal record, was to blame for her death. However, without any substantial evidence, the case went cold. After Rifkin was apprehended, Jenny Soto's panties, bra, ID cards, and drug syringes were found in his Long Island home. In February of 1993, Rifkin met 28-year-old Leah Evans a single mother of two. Rifkin drove to an abandoned parking lot so the two could have sex. Leah was too creeped out to undress in some sketchy parking lot, and she suggested they go somewhere else. Joel said, no way, we're doing it right here, right now, and Leah started crying. Rifkin strangled her and drove her body across to Long Island and buried her in a shallow grave in the woods. There she was discovered by hikers, her body in an advanced state of decomposition that May. A forensic anthropologist was in the process of reconstructing Leah's face in order to identify the body when Rifkin made his confession. Leah's driver's license was later found in Rifkin's home, along with dozens of ID cards belonging to various young women. Rifkin picked up 28-year-old Lauren Marquez on 2nd Avenue in New York in April of 1993. He was no longer interested in sex or small talk and went straight in for the kill. Joel could see there was no one around to notice him, so he just started strangling Lauren in his car as he stopped on the side of the road near the Manhattan Bridge. The strangulation ceased momentarily as a man walked by with his dog, and Lauren nearly managed to escape her captor. After the dog walker passed, Rifkin came back with twice the rage and snapped Lauren's neck. He stashed her body in the Pine Barrens of Suffolk County, where it lay until Rifkin led police to its location after his arrest. 22-year-old Tiffany Bresciani had moved to New York from Louisiana with dreams of becoming a famous actress or dancer. Her focus shifted after she became addicted to heroin. She got into sex work, which is how she met Joel Rifkin and her untimely end. On June 24, 1993, Joel strangled Tiffany in the New York Post parking lot around 5.30 a.m. He drove his mother's car to East Meadow with Tiffany's body laying across the back seat. He bought a tarp and some rope, wrapped the body up, and put it in the trunk. As he stepped out of the car, Joel's mother came out of the house exclaiming, Oh good, you're home. I need the car. She went out and ran errands, all with Tiffany in the trunk, completely unaware of the corpse. On June 28, 1993, Rifkin got to work on fixing his own truck, which had been in need of repair so he could transport Tiffany's body without the use of his mother's car. Joel put Tiffany into a wheelbarrow in the garage and worked on his truck all afternoon with the woman's corpse to keep him company. Once the repairs were finished, Rifkin wrapped the body in a tarp and loaded it into his truck and drove off. In his haste, he neglected to put the truck's license plate in place. Because of the missing license plate, 
Officers on patrol grew suspicious and started tailing the truck. Soon they noticed the bumper sticker. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but whips and chains excite me. When they tried to pull him over, the truck accelerated. The cops gave chase, and Rifkin stepped on it. What ensued was a rather low-speed chase, which climaxed when Rifkin smacked into a telephone pole right in front of the courthouse. The police found the driver uninjured and proceeded to search the truck, where they found the body of Tiffany Bresciani wrapped in a tarp. It was clear at that moment that Joel Rifkin was a killer, though at the time, police were only aware of the one victim. At the station, Rifkin confessed to a whole slew of murders and led investigators to the bodies that had yet to be discovered. Meanwhile, detectives descended on the Rifkin family home and uncovered a trove of trophies, as well as a wheelbarrow and a chainsaw smeared with bits of flesh and blood. Despite his confessions and overwhelming evidence, Joel Rifkin decided to plead not guilty at his trial. His defense tried to use the insanity defense, deeming him a paranoid schizophrenic unable to control his own actions. Rifkin was determined to be sane, but it sure is chilling how calmly and coolly he delivered the descriptions of his multiple murders during his recorded confession, and how he seemed to have no remorse over what he had done. In 1994, Joel Rifkin was found guilty of nine counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to 203 years to life in prison. Rifkin spent a shocking amount of time in solitary confinement over four years. He sued the Clinton County Correctional Facility in New York, but a state appellate court found the prison officials had not violated Rifkin's constitutional rights by keeping him in isolation. Prison officials say they were only trying to cut down on prison drama in a facility that houses over 200 criminals too dangerous to mingle with the general prison population. They were horrified by the thought of solitary confinement. Maybe they've got a point because while out of solitary confinement, at one point Rifkin was punched in the mouth by mass murderer Colin Ferguson during an argument over whose killings were better. Wow. Gross. At the trial, Jean and Jan Rifkin... Joel's mother and sister, understandably receded from public view. Jean Rifkin remained in the family home until her death in 2010, despite the horrific history of murder and dismemberment between its walls. In 1995, the Buffalo News reported that Jean was auctioning off a recorded jailhouse interview with her son to help pay the family's extensive legal bills. After Jean's death, the house went up for sale, but many prospective buyers were put off, convinced a home with a past like that must be haunted. But after about a year on the market, the house did sell for $322,000, $100,000 under the asking price. Joel Rifkin is currently being housed at the Clinton County Correctional Facility. He's eligible for parole in 2197 at the age of 238. Um, I'm surprised to say that I've never heard of this, even though he's the most prolific serial killer right. in New York state. And, uh, right. you know, I've not seen most Seinfeld episodes. So I'm not surprised <laughs> I haven't heard that reference, but wow. Yeah. I mean, that was just a, it's like, I guess I spot the true crime references in anything that I'm watching and I'm right. like, oh, that's funny that they mentioned this guy. And it's, it's even funnier that they managed to make a reference to a killer that I knew nothing about, even as a lifelong true crime fan. So right. 
Yeah. Had you ever, like after seeing the episode a few times, had you ever done a little like Wikipedia dive or anything? Amazingly, no. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I've just been like, mm, kind of sounds familiar, but whatever, right. and just kind of glaze over it. And it took me a few years to realize, wait, why have I never looked into who the heck this guy is? So now yeah. I have, and now we know, and um, he's gross. Yeah. Super gross. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, what are you watching this week? Uh, you know, I haven't had much of a chance to watch much TV, but I know that I am very excited that uh, the day we're recording this on Tuesday, Only Murders in the Building has released two episodes. Yeah. And I <laughs> promised my husband that I would not watch it until he gets home from work oh, yeah. tonight. And I, I have yeah. a lot of work to do on our Patreon episode that <laughs> I saw to release so this week. So like, yeah. I'm like, should I just watch it? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I have to. Watch it and pretend you didn't. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> yes. So I'm yeah, about I gotta that. watch that one with Louie too. Yeah, yeah. So we mm. will definitely talk about that next week. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, I did watch one thing which is pretty new um, for research for uh, our Patreon on the Girl Scout murders, which is called mm-hmm. uh, Keeper of the Ashes, the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, which came out, I think, on ABC in the past couple of months. Like, have you okay. heard of this with Kristen Chenoweth? I heard that there was a new uh, a new thing about the Girl Scout murders, a new documentary, but I had not uh, seen it. Yeah, it's uh, it's good. Um, there's like definitely some new information out there that I wasn't aware mm-hmm. of. And they do a bit more exploration into um, the man that people sort of assume is the killer who was acquitted mm-hmm. of her murders and sort of like the racism of the time that could have mm-hmm. infiltrated it because he was indigenous. So it's mm-hmm. an interesting watch. Um, it does feature Kristen Chenoweth, who um, is, of course, like Broadway star and like whatever, <laughs> like if you're not mm-hmm. familiar with her, she's very funny. And mm-hmm. I guess like she is from near Tulsa, I think Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and was okay. supposed to go to that Girl Scout camp. Like she was oh signed God. up to go and was like supposed to go. <gasps> um, she was the same age as Michelle, uh, one of the victims, like she knew Michelle. And then she got sick mm-hmm. and her mom wouldn't let her go to camp. <gasps> Um, oh my God. Yeah, which is so <laughs> spooky. And actually, Allison May Pilates instructor was saying, like, we should do like a bunch of shows about people that like nearly evaded. Nearly missed. Yeah. yeah. Like, that would be such an That's interesting true. angle. That's another angle than like a regular survivor story, but it's like really interesting just how yeah. things happen to work out in the last minute to not to like for someone to narrowly escape that. I, I think about that all the time, actually. Whenever, um, you know, if I have plans in my life and something fucks it up and I don't get to do the thing, I'm always like, well, maybe I'm narrowly avoiding yeah. getting murdered or blown up or God knows what. So yeah, <laughs> if it's meant good, to be, whatever, I'll yeah, stay home. It's an interesting <laughs> perspective how I like that. But um, but yeah, it's good. I got a lot of criticism for making it a little bit too much about Kristen. And like, admittedly, oh. they kind of talked about like her life in Oklahoma a little bit more than focusing on the victims. Like I think there probably mm. was a, a bit better way to have sort of involved yeah. her in the project because I think it is interesting to hear that, how it's impacted her life, like how she was terrified sure. being in her own yard as a kid and, you know, like these things that certainly affect you when you're eight or nine years old. Um, Definitely. But it's it's uh, it's worth a watch if that's a crime you're interested in. There is a lot of new information. Cool. So how about you? Um, well, I mean, for re- research for this episode, I watched the film Rifkin on Rifkin, which mm-hmm. was really interesting because he's putting into his own words and describing his own crimes as he did them and what he was thinking and feeling at the time, which was not a heck of a lot, um, which is really uh, disturbing to hear right out of his mouth. He just says it so 
Um, matter of factly, he's like, you know, I, uh, I went to the store, I bought some eggs, I murdered a sex worker, mm. I chopped up her head, I went wow. to the bathroom, I, you know, like just very calmly, very right. just matter of factly. And that is a heck of a lot of disturbing yeah. <laughs> right there. So sounds like, um, it. I watched another show about him, um, of which there's a whole series about other killers and stuff as well. It's called killers behind the myth. Um, and this was pretty decent if you like that kind of series where it's like each episode digs into a different, uh, probably familiar killer, but just gives you a little bit more background info. Um, so pretty well done, not super cheesy. Um, and I started this, uh, series called, um, the web of make believe. Have you seen this? Is that the swatting show? It has the swatting episode. Yeah. So I saw that at the the beginning and then I was like, I'm going to not watch that one, but I'm going to watch this other one that was like um, the ad that immediately played when you click on the show, which is um, an episode about a girl who um, became part of the alt-right and joined Mm. like a, a big alt right group. And she was like, look, I'm, I, my beliefs aren't like that. Like I'm not a Nazi and all of this. And she was like, you know, it's a slippery slope and this is how I got involved. You know, my boyfriend was like, you never think of things from my perspective. And I was like, fine, I'll read the thing that you're insisting on me reading. And then before long, I was reading all sorts of shit. And before Mm. long I was hanging out with all sorts of weird alt-right people. And then we were going to events and you're seeing people saying really awful stuff, but you're like, those are the extremists. And you know, we're not like that. We're not all like that. And then before you know it, you fucking are. And so that's uh, what's so disturbing is just that someone, I mean, I would say the majority of people involved in these groups, like, don't have those intentions to start out with. And uh, there's reasons why they use coded language and start to say things about um, erasing culture and stuff like that, rather than just point blank being like, I am a white supremacist, because that's how they sneak it in under the door. And you're like, oh, maybe I'll look at that, you know, and it's like, this is how they get people again, just like with cults, you know, smart, informed, um, you know, average humans that uh, that get suckered into this stuff. So that is horrifying. But um, it's it's interesting to see how that can take place. Horrifying. And again, I will definitely check yeah. that out because I would be very interested to know how that does happen. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Sometimes to like friends I've had that have been like quite liberal and all of a sudden they're wearing like Trump hats. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This happened to, um, <laughs> well, we don't know the person. So we don't know if he was liberal before or what, but we just, Louis had this, this unspoken like camaraderie with a um, fellow mustachio <laughs> in our neighborhood. <laughs> I love um, that. They walk by with their <laughs> mustaches and like wave at each other like bus drivers or something. Uh-huh. But like one day the mustache guy he had on a mega hat and Louis was like, oh no, it's over. <laughs> Just oh, like that. <laughs> yeah. No so, more mustache. Yeah. Then Louis yeah. shaved his mustache. <laughs> Not yet, but he will. Like he would never. <laughs> Eventually. I'm sure. He likes yeah. to mix it up. So right. <laughs> keep you on your toes. I just wanted to give a shout out to Vancouver Murderinos, uh, which I think in Facebook is like the BC, British Columbia Murderinos. But um, I was like really in a dark place, like probably a lot of us this past Friday after the um, overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, like we're definitely mm-hmm. thinking about everyone like this is a very dark time Mm. I'm sure we're all going through and um, just like having moved to a new place and not really having anybody to talk to and just being on this terrible Mm. anxiety spiral of like how bad things are going to get especially knowing that like my one of my home states like Texas 
um, you know, like it, it's just really bad. Like it's just, yeah. just really scary to know how things are going to go in the U.S. right now. And mm-hmm. so I had made a post in the Facebook group, just kind of like asking if anybody was available to meet up for a drink and just kind of saying like, I'm American. Thank you for having me in your country <laughs> right now. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I'm just really worried about like people at home, like I'm just wondering if anybody could meet up for a drink to like chat and kind of like talk me off my ledge. And um, mm-hmm. I got quite a lovely response of people like willing to meet up. Like Aww. a new friend was able to come meet me in like 30 minutes. Like she met me near my Aww. hotel and we went and had a drink. And I had many others like reach out and say like, let's get together and like whatever. Wow. So um, shout out to that group for being such a supportive community. Like that's why I just love being part of this community. There's so yeah. many incredible people that are just like so kind and like so aware of like mental health issues and so mm-hmm. supportive. Like it's just, it's just, just so great to be here. And yeah. 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 That's amazing. Um, and sounds perfect for you too, because like if some folks are willing to meet up for a first meeting, like with a 30 minute notice, then I suppose that means you can call them up whenever and be like, what are you doing now? Right. <laughs> so like that will come in handy. I have your number now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to regret that. Watch out. <laughs> Nonstop Aurora. Um, But also, you know, um, I know that this might be uh, easier said than done because of financial constraints and such, but I know that Mm -hmm. my doors are open uh, in Vancouver. Uh, If anybody should need emergency help, I could probably even help with some kind of financing or whatever to help get you there. Um, So, and I hear that Canada has opened its borders to Americans in general for procedures, uh, which is good to know if you hadn't heard that, to just keep that in mind. Well, I'm not much help in the financial department, but I can help coordinate your trip, um, help you make an appointment, help you get around. Um, I can help with a place to stay. Uh, You know, together as one big community, we've got you covered. I love how folks here in Canada are really stepping up to do what they can. Um, When your government doesn't support you, your community's got you. It's great to see. And so we've got you covered on East and West Coast. Yeah. <laughs> if you should need help or, you know, if you're just having a bad day, send us a message. Like we know what everybody is going through right now um, yeah. to some extent. So um, just hang in there. I'm, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. The world does seem like a dark place right now, but. Yeah. We'll get through it with the community. Yeah, that's for how, sure. That's how to do it. Well, I guess that's enough murder for one week. If you disagree and would prefer just a smidge more murder this week, you can get your fill on murdermurder.news, where we post the latest breaking true crime news articles all week long. You can also find us on Instagram at murdermurdernews, on Twitter at mmmurdernews, on TikTok at murdermurdernews, and on Facebook, you can find our page by searching for murdermurdernews. And while you're on Facebook searching for Murder, Murder News, you'll also see our group pop up. We haven't been so active on social media lately because we're still getting into the swing of things after our summer break and we're working to reorganize our content. But one place we never stop posting things is in our Facebook group where we like to just chat about the wildest true crime stories in the news, new documentaries coming out soon, and basically anything and everything that has been generating buzz in the true crime world. So join that Facebook group if you want to talk murder with your favorite podcast hosts and fellow monsters, and to stay up to date about our latest book club selections. We just finished Missing from the Village by Justin Ling, and we're starting on Just Like Mother by Anne Heltzel, which will be right up your alley if you're fascinated by cults like we are. We'll meet on Zoom on Sunday, July 31st to discuss, and we hope to see some new faces there. 
If you love what you're hearing, drop what you're doing and give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help new fans find the show and let us know what we're doing right so we can continue to deliver all the best in true crime content. Have a great weekend. Bye, friends. Bye. Thank you.